So what does Jesus say about homosexuality? Common cultural wisdom today is that Jesus says nothing about it. The thinking goes like this. Since Jesus doesn't speak explicitly, like by name, about homosexuality, then he took no stance on it. Not only that, but his supposed silence on the issue is sometimes considered license for the acceptability of of homosexual behavior and practice. I mean, certainly, duh, he would have said something if he had known it would be important to us culturally today, which, by the way, is an anachronistic logical fallacy for the nerds. So I've heard many folks make arguments like that. He would have said something if it had been that important. (laughs) But is it true that Jesus really says nothing about homosexuality, about homosexual behavior and practice. Well, it is true that by name, explicitly, he says nothing. All that means, though, is that we have to answer this question by looking at the implications of what he does say about sexual practice generally and how that fits with the rest of what Scripture says. So that's what we're doing today. And we're not going to have time, remotely going to have time, to look through all of the places where Scripture talks about these questions. But we will look at a couple places that help us answer this question well. Now, one thing to establish very clearly at the the outset here. Everyone on the planet has an ultimate source of authority. Everyone on the planet has, in fact, sources but ultimately one source of authority that governs their life. Sadly, few actually know that, uh, who it is or what that authority is. But it's important for us to say that today because what's important to establish is that for us today as a church, our answer to this question about homosexual behavior and practice, it assumes that the scriptures are our ultimate source of authority and truth. It's worth saying that very clearly up front, that the scriptures are our ultimate source of authority and truth. It's not our experience, it's not our feelings, our smarts, it's not the world, it's not the internet, it's not the Supreme Court, it's not our preferred political philosophy, it's not even our friends and family, and it's certainly not our own supposed awesomeness that can figure out everything, which is not true, but self-deception. For the follower of Jesus, this book tells us who we are how to live, and for today, how to think about the world in which we live. For the Christian, the word of God is the ultimate authority. And our experience and our understanding and our personal relationships and the answer to today's question, they're all filtered through. They should be defined and redefined by what God says in the scriptures. And this is worth saying for us up front, not just as a reminder uh, that we sit today under the authority of God's word, uh, but because this point is actually an important preliminary for answering our specific question today. You see, the Bible tells us in the very beginning that we'll look at in just a second here, the Bible tells us at the most basic and the most fundamental level, before all of our messed up perceptions of reality begin to muddy the water, the Bible tells us very clearly what our purpose is as human beings. 
And it tells us this starting the very first chapters of Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, if you uh, don't yet have that handy. We're going to start there to uh, establish very clearly that the Bible tells us why we exist. So turn with me to Genesis 1, 26 to 8. We're going to get to Jesus' words on the matter soon. But we start in Genesis because it provides the background for how Jesus actually answers this question about homosexual practice and behavior later on in the New Testament. You see, here's the thing we need to be clear about Genesis here. A lot of Christians approach Genesis as if the important stuff is how the earth is made. But really, what we're saying today is the important stuff about Genesis is why the earth was made and what that tells us about God purpose in creation and our particular role in creation. You have to get this part right before you begin reading the scriptures. Otherwise, you misread the whole Bible, you misread the world, you misread yourself, uh, your relationships, everything. So read along with me, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. This is God's purpose in creation, his mandate for mankind. Verse 26, he says this, then God said, let us Make man, this is God speaking to himself here, let us make man, that's mankind, humanity, uh, both male and female, that will become clear as we go along. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now this concept of being made in God's image uh, is important to get clear. So we're gonna simmer on it just a smidge here. What's important to understand here about this concept of being made in God's image is something we can understand in two basic ways. It means two things at its most basic level. Number one, to be able to hear from and respond to God. And secondly, to do what he does. Not with the same power, don't worry, relax. That'd be cool, but probably not that cool. <laughs> to be made in God's image means, number one, to be able to hear from and respond to God, and number two, it means we have some measure of ability and responsibility to do what God does. So here's the crux of the matter so far. To be made in God's image means you were created with the capacity to carry on his work. You were created with the capacity to carry on the work he started in the work of creation. And here's what this work looks like. Keep reading verse 26. Let them, meaning both man and woman, let them have dominion, power and oversight and responsibility. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In other words, Adam and Eve, take charge of caring for creation and keep the good work that I started going. Genesis 2.15 says it pretty clearly. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So, verse 27, so God created man in his own image for the purpose. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Look at this, male and female, he created them. This isn't just a statement that expands on this idea of mankind being male and female. When it says male and female, he created them, it means that they were created as biological man and biological woman as sexual complements. C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T-S, with an E in the middle, not an I. Uh, complements meaning they were designed to fit together. We all tracking? 
So something about being made in God's image meant being created, male and female, being fitted together, together biologically. And next, the reason for their complementarity as a means for carrying out God's mandate begins to become a little more explicit. It's, it's hinted at even here in verses uh, 28 here uh, and following. It says this, verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Which, by the way, doesn't ultimately only just mean make babies, but at this point in Scripture, it very explicitly means this. More on that in a little bit here. Uh, later. Verse 28, God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, meaning make babies, and subdue it, being in, being in charge of the earth, take care of it, have dominion, be a steward of creation, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice that the very first thing in the Bible that God says directly to Adam and Eve is this command, to be fruitful and multiply. The first thing God says is, be fruitful, do what I have been doing in creation. Carry on this creative work that I began by using the complementary nature of my creation of you to carry that on. Just like the rest of the creation had been doing in Genesis 1. Now, Jump down to Genesis 2, 24 real quick. Genesis 2, verse 24. If Genesis 1, 26 through 28, if they speak sort of about the general purpose for which God created humanity, and it begins to hint at the method for fulfilling those purposes in creating them as sexual complements, then Genesis 2, 24 begins to talk more explicitly about the means for this command of be fruitful and multiply. Look at verse 24, it says this. Therefore... In other words, because of all of that stuff that God's been doing in creation and the mandate he gave them to be fruitful and multiply, verse 24, Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become, it says, one flesh. And Genesis 2:24 is the means of fulfilling the mandate of Genesis 1. And lest you think I'm squeezing more out of this than seems warranted, uh, those words at the end there, one flesh at the end of verse 24, they do indeed mean exactly the kind of sexually complementary intimacy that you think they mean. <laughs> Which means that Genesis 2.24 is revealing God's provision for fulfilling his purpose, at least in sexual terms. It's not ultimately the only way that God provides for fulfilling his purposes. We can talk more later about how making disciples is ultimately a form of, of making babies, um, but we don't have time for all that today. But according to how God created the world and what he says here in the beginning of Genesis, it is, meaning sexual complementary uh, organs that come together as one flesh, that is, in fact, the primary way that he says in the beginning of Genesis that he continues this mission of stewarding the world well. And by the way, that's something for which we are all glad since every single one of us owes our existence to what I just said. <laughs> so, to summarize, according to Genesis 
1, 26 through 8, and Genesis 2, 24, and really the wider context of Genesis 1 through 3, we are called to carry on God's creative work, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion, which means to be godly stewards and caretakers of all of creation. And the primary means of doing so, at least sexually, and that's what we're confining our discussion to today, the primary means of doing so is by making babies, just like Genesis 1 says, to bear fruit in which is our seed according to our kind. That's why that kind of language is is throughout Genesis 1. So, how does this relate to the question that we're asking today about what Jesus says about homosexual behavior and practice? According to how God created the world, If a fundamental purpose of humankind's existence is to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, how does that work without complementary heterosexual genitals that procreate? It doesn't. The God-given, the God-given means and design of doing so only works when complementary male-female genitalia come together heterosexually to produce offspring. And while there are other ways to be fruitful and multiply non-sexually, we could talk about that later, um, just because you can't have babies or you're, uh, for whatever reason, unable to, don't want to, whatever the the case may be, making babies is not the only way uh, to make uh, disciples, to, to be fruitful and multiply. But today, we are confining our discussion to God's intent for sexuality. And what is very clear is that in Scripture, the ability to procreate is a fundamental precondition for God's command of being fruitful in the first chapters of Genesis. This is why, actually, throughout the Old and New Testaments, as well as early Jewish and Christian commentary on the Scriptures, as well as early Jewish and Christian commentary on the wider world, when it comes to talking about matters of sexuality, they use phrases like, after their kind, or according to nature, or contrary to nature. Those became recurring motifs throughout the Scripture and outside of the Scripture to communicate God's original intent and design for sex. In fact, as we're saying today, uh, contrary to how you often hear it talked about in the wider culture, Jesus himself picks up on everything we've just said from the first chapters of Genesis as his assumption for God's intent and why the design for procreation to a heterosexual complementary relationship is God's design. He grabs all of that from Genesis and talks about that in Matthew 19, 3 through 6. Let's go ahead and turn there if you're not there yet. Matthew 19, 3 through 6. Here in Matthew 19, Jesus speaks from this assumption about God's intent for marriage as a one man and one woman who complement one another sexually kind of thing. So, look at this, Matthew 19, 3 through 6. It says this, verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him, came up to Jesus, and tested him. This is one of many times when the Jewish religious experts challenged Jesus. They tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There were two really hotly contested schools of thought about divorce at the time. 
uh, and they wanted him to come down on one side or the other, but he doesn't, he doesn't play their game. Look at what he does here. He actually uh, becomes stricter than the two schools of thought, and he does so by reminding the Pharisees of God's original intent. Look at this in verse four. He says, he answered, this is hilarious, by the way. This is Jesus answering to them. Have you not read, which by the way, parenthetically, of course they've read. They've got the Hebrew memorized. They wear the T-shirt. They knew full well probably what he was about to say, uh, maybe not, but this is the first example of Jesus bringing down some holy and righteous sarcasm. This is like the original Jesus juke. He says, have you not read? In other words, duh, of course they've read. They knew this. They had the Hebrew memorized. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, meaning God, (laughs) have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's, he's saying, like, are you somehow unaware, Pharisees, who know the law, the Old Testament well? Are you somehow unaware that in the very first chapter of the very first book of the, first book of the Old Testament, that God himself says, I made them male and female, giving them complementary body parts so that they could carry out my command of being fruitful and multiplying. And then he quotes, what do you know, Genesis 2, 24. Look at this in verse 5. He says, therefore, meaning the reason for filling God's command of being fruitful. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're not any longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus here is saying that God's intent for sex is to carry out God's purposes in the world. God's intent for all sexual Intercourse has always been God's intent for the world. Yes, it is enjoyable. That is a byproduct. That's not an original thing. That's not the first thing. Our culture makes that first and puts that as a higher thing. Don't fall into that silly trap. God's design for sex has always been to carry out his purposes in the world. And the complementarity of male and female there is literally the only way that purpose is carried out sexually. And Jesus' own words to the Pharisees here, his challenge to them in Matthew 19, it's based on ideas from Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis 2, 24. As a way of saying that only biologically male and female parts carry out God's design to be fruitful and multiply. Not only this, but look at verses 11 and 12 there in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, 11 to 12, Jesus is very clear in saying that the only God-honoring alternative to a heterosexual marriage is celibacy. And this is why, by the way, <laughs> this is why, by the way, churches and Christians have for many, many, many centuries said anything outside of the bounds of marriage, whether you're uh, living together, dating seriously, regardless of what you call it, if you are not married, sexual intimacy is out of bounds. It's because of this kind of thing that he says here. Jump down to verses 11 and 12 here in uh, Matthew 19. To bring you up to speed, the disciples heard Jesus' response to the Pharisees, and they were like, well then, why marry in the first place if it's going to be that impossible to make happen exactly correctly? And so Jesus, uh, so they say to him, then I guess it's better not to be married at all. So Jesus responds like this in verse 11. He says, Not everyone can receive this saying, in other words, this isn't for everyone, but only those to whom it is given. 
It's not for everyone, but it's for what's called eunuchs here, which is just another word for basically those who are celibate by whatever means. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have, been, uh, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Um, that's not necessarily a literal eunuch. That's also a functional one there at the end. Uh, let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. So not only does Jesus remind the Pharisees earlier in this chapter that God's design from the beginning was a monogamous heterosexual marriage, but he makes clear that the only God-honoring alternative here is celibacy, meaning in Jesus' mind, you are either married according to God's design or you are single. There is no other option. He also makes this clear in Mark 7, verses 20 to 23 here. Look at Mark 7, 20 to 23. You're either married according to God's intention, uh, original design and intent, or you are single, and there's not a third option available. Start at verse 20, Mark 7. He said, this is Jesus speaking again, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, meaning one's behavior is what makes us spiritually unclean before God and worthy of his condemnation. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. And then he says this, press pause, sexual immorality. The word used here for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It meant for Jesus and for Mark that all forms of sexual behavior outside of God's original design that we've already talked about from Genesis 1, 2, and previously, that everything outside of God's original intent for sexual complementary design is out of bounds. So all forms of sexual immorality regardless of how you define it, is how the New Testament uses this word. So what he's saying is, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. And then he lists sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. So here in Mark 7, as Jesus lists these things that make someone uh, spiritually unclean before God, the disciples listening, they would have had uh, no doubts that he was including in that list as he spoke all forms of sexual behavior and practice outside of God's original design for a monogamous heterosexual marriage between one man, one woman. So to answer our question today, just clearly and plainly, Jesus does not explicitly mention homosexual behavior, but he does absolutely address it implicitly in his teaching on sexual sin, in which he condemns all forms of sexual behavior that are contrary um, to God's design. Now, how should the church and how should we as Christians uh, respond? What about when life doesn't turn out in accordance with God's design? We actually all have personal experience with exactly that question. <laughs> and we don't have time to give a comprehensive answer today, but we, do, uh, we don't want to shy from giving some quick help. So just a few quick thoughts here uh, as we wrap up about how to think about these issues and how we as Christians and churches uh, should respond in a way that's a, a John 1.14 fullness of grace and truth. So just a few quick thoughts. Number one is this, homosexual, homosexuality, by which we mean homosexual behavior or practice. Homosexuality is not remotely unique in its sinfulness. Think about the list we just read in Mark 7. 
That list in Mark 7, it includes behaviors that condemn every last one of us. Genesis 6, 5 they t- that verse there before the flood talks about how God looked at the wickedness of mankind on the earth. And it says, he saw that the intentions of the thought of his heart was evil. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the number one thing you can say about the human heart is that it is deceitful. It says it's desperately sick. Romans three twenty three says we are all We are all fallen short of God's glory. Friends, we are all guilty before God. (laughs) And if you have not committed homosexual sin, don't for a second think that the scriptures think of you as better off before God than someone who has. We treat homosexual sin the same way we treat all sin, as warranting repentance and return to God's design, and as of needful of ongoing personal holiness and accountability, which is every believer everywhere. Second thing, no one on the planet, no one on the planet is not worthy of the love, dignity, and kindness that come from the heart of God. By love we mean uh, the humble and sacrificial goodness of God that motivated him to die on the cross for all. By respect, we mean the inherent human worth and value and dignity that come from being made in the image of God. By kindness, we simply mean that the way we speak, the way we behave to all people should reflect the kindness of God given to us. 1 Peter 3.15 is our theme verse for this series. It says you should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Then it says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Christians, please stop being careless, thoughtless, lacking dignity and respect for all around you. Stop and pray, and think at least once, (laughs) if not more, before sharing and posting some things on your online feeds. Which is to say, don't let fear or anger get in the way of your witness. Also keep in mind, by the way, it is a rare person who has the calling, giftedness, and platform to make much of a difference online without an ongoing personal relationship and communication. It's just the nature of online stuff. <laughs> so don't feed flames um, by becoming part of an algorithm that filters everybody's content anyway. <laughs> Instead, work hard to implement God's love, human dignity, and personal kindness because those are what make for a winsome and attractive witness that communicate the heart of God. Third thing is when we become a community that learns to deal deeply and biblically with our own sin at a personal level, then we become a community that can help others deal deeply and biblical with their sin. This applies regardless of the issue, whether we're talking about homosexuality or anything else. 
You see, many churches and many Christians, they place this superficial and legalistic system of works-based righteousness onto the problem of sin, and not only does that not work, but it teaches a false gospel that at best temporarily manages sin in human terms. And listen, being well acquainted with the sort of socio-culturally conditioned form of the gospel that amounts to human sin management does not equip you to deal with your own sin, let alone someone else's. Amen. <laughs> that was one of my favorite lines, too. So please make sure you know how to deal deeply and biblically with your sin at a personal level uh, before messing up somebody else. Serious, seriously. Jesus had some stern words for religious leaders who took human-based, works-based righteousness and just imposed it on the problem of sin. <laughs> he said, you make them twice the sons of Satan. He had stern words for those in his day who didn't understand how God's grace worked, but pretended they did. It's really actually very important that we learn to deal deeply and biblically with our own sin. Then you can go make disciples. Well, if you want to learn how to deal with, deal with uh, sin deeply and biblically at a personal level uh, that does equip you uh, to grow in your own relationship with God and that equips you to help others find and follow um, that kind of freedom from sin, we would love for you to join us at Regeneration. Regen is a structure and a vocabulary. It meets on Monday nights um, here at our Greenville campus. It's a structure and a vocabulary straight from the Word of God that helps us deal with sin. And, and let's be real. Many of us who have been believers for a long, long time do not understand well how to deal biblically and deeply with sin. We've been living under the pretenses of a self-righteous, pharisaical system imposed on it and that doesn't work so come join us at regen we'd love to have you um, if you've got questions about these kinds of questions or issues uh, things that are uh, tangential um, questions you have about things we'd love to have you come join us at great questions on monday nights uh, maybe if you yourself you need to turn from sin and, and trust in christ come pray. Let's talk. If you need prayer today, please come. Let's pray together. Um, if you're ready today to identify with Christ in, in, in the waters of baptism or commit to this church family as a member, uh, we would love to invite you to come forward as well. Let's go ahead and uh, pray together, friends. Father in heaven, it is our desire to live in ways that not only bring you glory, but that also ultimately give us the experience of your good pleasure, of experiencing the joy of seeing you, through your spirit, remake hearts and minds. So Father, continue to direct us as we give ourselves to the authority of your holy word and your spirit's work in our hearts that as we submit ourselves to you, you would make us into the men and the women you created us to be so that we would fulfill the purposes you gave to us and experience the joy that you uh, promised us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.